0: Today, I'm honored to be joined by Dr. Paul Song, a physician, oncologist, progressive activist, and biotech chief medical officer. Through his company, NKGen Bio, Dr. Song is leveraging the power of patients' own immune systems by supercharging the body's natural killer cells to make new treatments for Alzheimer's and cancer. Whereas other treatments for Alzheimer's focus directly on reducing the buildup of proteins in the brain, such as amyloid and tau, in patients with mild cognitive impairment, NKGen is seeking to help patients that much of the rest of the medical community has written off as hopeless cases, those with late-stage Alzheimer's. And in small studies, NKGen has shown remarkable results, even improvement in the symptoms of people with these very progressed forms of Alzheimer's, above and beyond slowing down the disease. In the realm of cancer, Dr. Song is similarly setting his sights on another group of patients for whom treatment options are few and far between, people with solid tumors. Whereas some gradual progress has been made in treating blood cancers, such as certain leukemias in the past few decades, solid tumors have been much more of a challenge. But Dr. Song's approach of using natural killer cells to treat solid tumors is promising. You may have heard of CAR-T, which uses genetic engineering to introduce cells into the body, have a particular function to help treat a disease. NK Biogen focuses on other means to enhance the 40 plus receptors of natural killer cells, making them more receptive and sensitive to picking out cancer cells. Dr. Song is the grandson of the late Sang Don Kim, who was the first popularly elected mayor of Seoul, South Korea. Dr. Song serves as the co-chair for a campaign for a healthy California. In 2013, he was named and served as the very first visiting fellow on healthcare policy in the California Department of Insurance. In addition, Dr. Song serves on the executive board of physicians for a national health program, California, People for the American Way, Progressive Democrats of America, Healthcare Now, the Eisner Pediatric and Women's Center, and the Asian Pacific American Institute for Congressional Studies. Dr. Song graduated with honors from the University of Chicago, received his MD from George Washington University, and completed his residency in radiation and oncology at the University of Chicago. He sees Medicaid and uninsured patients at Dignity California Hospital. Under Dr. Song's leadership, NK Biogen's work on natural killer cells is fascinating and represents cutting-edge science resulting in findings that are contributing to our understanding of two of humanity's most intractable diseases, and could soon provide huge pieces of the puzzle for finding solutions. I'm Matt Fuchs, and this is Making Sense of Science. Hi, Paul. Thanks for making time to join the podcast today. Uh, Really welcome the opportunity to talk about the exciting work that you're doing with NKGen Biotech. Well, thank you for having me. Excellent. So you are leveraging the power of patients' immune systems by supercharging the body's natural killer T-cells to make new treatments for a range of diseases. First of all, could you tell us about natural killer T-cells? What's their role in the body and why are they so important?
1: So uh, just one little distinction within the uh, blood system, you've got uh, white blood cells, which are the immune cells that uh, are natural killer cells, natural killer T cells and T cells. We are actually focused on natural killer cells, not natural killer T cells. Um, But uh, they are the first line of defense in our body's immune system that play the role through a slew of receptors. They have the ability to please your body. And when they come across something using their receptors, distinguish something from being self, and that should be left alone or not self, uh, whether it be a disease tissue like a cancer cell, a virally infected cell, or a renegade protein or immune cell, natural killer cells have the ability inherently to identify those and generally remove them. The problem is, um, depending on lifestyle changes, on, uh, as we age, our immune systems, in terms of their strength and integrity, can wax and wane. And it's in those moments where our immune systems are quite weak or have been deficient that things, uh, disease processes can flourish. And uh, so what we're able to do is to take anyone's natural killer cells, and no matter how Weaker, deficient they may be, through our process of really activating, stimulating, and strengthening them, we can produce large numbers of very enhanced uh, cells that uh, can really optimize what your own immune system was uh, evolved to do.
0: And could you tell the story of the co-founder of your company, I think, uh, and his father with advanced Alzheimer's, and how you sort of got involved Uh, at least partly through that experience and thinking about the use of natural killer cells in neurological conditions? Absolutely. So
1: I'm an oncologist by training, spent about 20 years uh, treating strictly cancer patients, but do have uh, an immunology uh, background. And what happened was we had developed this platform really with the idea of not just focusing on cancer, but other diseases where things were correlated with weaker deficient immune uh, systems. So again, if your listeners were to Google natural killer cell dysfunction or weak natural killer cells and put in other diseases, whether it be autoimmune diseases, cancer, uh, even autism, you'll find thousands of publications in uh, major journals that correlate weak or deficient natural killer cells with diseases. So um, unlike a lot of the natural killer cell companies that really set out to uh, develop a cancer specific therapy, we wanted to find a way to take natural killer cells and make them stronger and potentially use them across multiple diseases. Having said that, we did start in the cancer field and we st- soon showed that our NK cells uh, were very, very safe, because of that ability to discern normal tissue from healthy uh, from disease tissue, they don't cause the collateral damage that other immune cells do, like T cells and such. So, based on that, um, our founder's uh, uh, father had been uh, in a assisted living facility for many years, basically somnolent, not able to uh, talk, uh, very uh, withdrawn not engaged for many, many years. And this was pre-COVID. And he was very concerned that he was at a higher risk of developing just a community-acquired infection. Um, You know, pneumonia, the flu, things of that nature were still rampant prior to COVID. Uh, And given that we had shown that our cells were safe, he asked us, he asked me, you think it would be okay if I gave my father a few of his own enhanced NK cells? to boost his immune system and, and, and we thought about it. And we said, yeah, it should be very safe and frankly could make him uh, more hearty in terms of immune response. Um, so we, uh, he did this many years ago and all of a sudden about three months into the uh, treatment, he was just getting an injection, an infusion every month. He mentioned to me, you're not gonna believe this, but my father is now actually sitting up, he's talking to me when i'm in his room and he sees something on tv he's able to comprehend what's on tv and talk to me about it um this is remarkable can you see if there was any precedent of natural killer cells uh being playing a role in any pathology in alzheimer's disease and at the time i scoured all the literature uh, talked to a few uh, prominent uh, neuroscientists and nobody could tell me that this made any sense if anything Everyone thought this was nonsense and perhaps just a coincidence. So uh, based on that, um, about uh, two months later, the um, one of my employees at the time knew of a family that was doing a GoFundMe page for their uh, family member who was young. He was in his late 30s. He was a management consultant up in the Bay Area who had been um, all of a sudden acting somewhat erratically. They didn't know if he had you know, bipolar disorder, or perhaps some sort of substance abuse problem. He ended up at UCSF and was found to have this rare genetic mutation called PSEN1, which guarantees before the age of 50, he would have full-blown Alzheimer's disease or frontotemporal dementia. When we had met him four years later, he was already in hospice requiring 24-hour care, and this was the GoFundMe page because he required uh, constant care. And it was costing the family so much that they were basically going bankrupt. So we reached out to the family and we said, you know, we're not sure if this is going to work, but uh, we had one prior experience and we would at least like to make this available for your family member. Um, and, and they were so desperate, they said, let's, yes, let's try. But before we actually proceeded with treating this patient, um, I had Dr. Min Guo, who's head of Alzheimer's at UCLA, independently see and, value and evaluate this patient and she saw and met Daniel, and um, Daniel at the time was not able to get out of a wheelchair, he was not able to talk or hold a pen, so she couldn't even do a standard mini mental status exam. When we met him, he uh, was unable to feed himself, he was very withdrawn, um, and required, again, 24-hour care. So. Um, after we, um, got informed consent and, uh, drew his blood and, and over the course of three weeks, expanded these cells, we started to treat him. And after about three to four treatments, remarkably, he was now able to hold chopsticks to feed himself. He was able to converse and he was actually even able to get out of a wheelchair and do some, uh, walking. Um, with continued treatments, he even got to the point where he was able to, uh, initially when he started to regained the ability to walk, he was unsteady, he would fall. And his medical board would require that he'd wear a uh, a helmet. But after some more treatments, he was able to not only walk, he was able to even do some light jogging. Um, So this was something that was really um, a potential signal that maybe there really was something to what we had seen in our uh, founder's uh, dad. Um, So we tried it even one step further. We took a third patient, uh, this time, this was the mother of one of the um, investment bankers in New York. I was actually at a healthcare care conference um, right before COVID, and he was lamenting that his mom had advanced Alzheimer's disease. And again, there was nothing that anyone was able to offer her. And I said to him, again, we're not sure if this is going to work, but we'd like to at least make it available. So uh, over the course of six months of treatment, she went from not being able to recognize or, or remember her kid's names, that she lived in New York, not being able to feed herself and not being able to walk to being able to do all of those things. So at that point we realized that maybe there was something in there. And I had continued to um, uh, try to come up with the mechanism of action. And initially when we would talk to people Uh, the the biggest response I got was, stay in your lane, you're an oncologist, you don't know what you're talking about, Um, you should just focus on cancer. But because we saw these people really, really respond, we realized we couldn't um, give up. And to our founder's credit, um, he asked us not to give up, but to really continue to uh, solve what's happened. And I can say over the last three or four years, we have now put all the puzzle pieces together. Um, and uh, we can talk about that a little bit more, but we figured out the mechanism of action of why our natural kilocertals are actually making a difference in these advanced patients.
0: Oh, that's amazing. I just want to back up and ask, do you have any theories, why, given all of the attention that Alzheimer's and cancer have received from you know funding to try to research uh, these, these diseases and try to find... Solutions, therapies. Why do you think the scientific community is maybe just now waking up to the realization that natural killer cells can be a promising avenue? Was there were there concerns in the past with that avenue, or is just something that people for whatever reason didn't fully explore to find that they could have value?
1: Great question, Matt. So so I think what it is is if you look at all of the established experts in, in neuroscience and particularly in Alzheimer's disease. Um, they've all focused on the protein hypothesis, right? Which is the amyloid proteins uh, that they were what was mucking up the brain. And that's um, if we just focused on removing the proteins, that patients would automatically start to show improvement. And what we've seen from the recent studies from Eli Lilly and Esai and Biogen, uh, who developed antibodies specifically to clear those proteins, is that they are indeed working to reduce the amyloid proteins. But despite the fact that they're taking earliest stage patients, the mild cognitive impairment, nobody's getting better. They've only been able to slow the decline or the rate of decline. So part of this, I believe, is because you had no um, ivory tower or major institution that had ever looked at a different angle um, and nobody was championing this, That for some company that nobody heard of to start to talk about this, uh, people just looked uh, at us with tremendous skepticism and um, almost disgust. Now, having said that, over the last two or three years, you're starting to see a subtle shift within the neurodegenerative community away from the proteins and looking at neuroinflammation. Um, and that is something that at the last uh, clinical trials, Alzheimer's disease conference, there were quite a few people that spoke on neuroinflammation as a component of this. Um, so it, it's really interesting. Uh, and and I get it. There was no uh, publications or anyone that had ever looked at a real mechanism of action. And even when we started to show these causal relationships back then, we didn't have the full idea of how natural killer cells could do this. Um, And so I think a lot of people looked at us very skeptically for a lot of reasons. Now, um, after we presented our data at the most recent conference in Boston, um, and really put together a cogent uh, rationale and back this up with biomarker data and science, now more and more places are saying to us, wow, this does make sense. And in fact, some of the large uh, leading um, Uh, institutions in the United States have all reached out to us asking to participate in our next clinical trial. So that's been a nice uh, validation. Also when we submitted our um, preliminary data to the US FDA, they uh, looked at the science and they said, oh, this does make a lot of sense. And they approved us to move forward with our uh, phase two trial. So it took us some time, it took us some persistence. And I think had we just been working on animals and cured it in a few mice, uh, I I think you know, there would still be skepticism, but the fact that we've now treated about 13 uh, patients with this, um, 10 in the phase one uh, safety trial uh, and showed, you know, some pretty dramatic results. I think now people are at least saying, wow, this this is really exciting versus this is impossible.
0: Yeah, and in that phase one experimental testing, I guess it was, you mentioned the 10 participants taking part in in those tests and they're showing promising results in their cognitive abilities after nine months and was it ninety percent of the patients in phase one clinical trial showed improvement or maintained stable cognitive functioning in that eleven week period uh, is is that right and and what was how does that translate into the specific point gains I guess in in the patients that saw benefits, how significant were the the improvements in the, I guess it's the adcoms, the mm-hmm. Alzheimer's disease composite score?
1: Great question. So
0: first and foremost, it's important to realize
1: that um, we needed to prove that our natural killer cells, when they were given through an IV, could actually get up into the brain to uh, have an effect. So um, we uh, took um, very uh, diverse population of patients. We had a few with mild cognitive impairment, but majority of our patients were much more moderate or severe cases. In fact, the median um, middle mental, mini mental status score exam uh, uh, for our population was 14. Uh, if you look at the mild cognitive impairment studies, they had patients in the mid-20s, so we were already starting with patients that were much more advanced. Um, and what we, we did was we did uh, lumbar punctures and measured cerebral spinal fluid levels of proteins, amyloid proteins, tau proteins, alpha-synuclein proteins, and then also looked at the level of inflammation in the brain before we gave our first dose of natural killer cells. And then after four doses of natural killer cells, we uh, repeated the lumbar puncture and we looked for changes in the reduction in proteins as well as the reduction in neuroinflammation. And then three months later, we did that again. So that was one independent metric that we could show our NK cells could get into the brain to uh, not only reduce proteins like the Biogen, Lilly, and e drugs, but also reduce neuroinflammation like now a lot of other folks are focused on. So, um, one, we were able to successfully show that we had reduction in amyloid proteins, tau proteins, and alpha-synuclein proteins, and then several neuroinflammatory markers like glial fibrillary acid protein. All of those things um, really validated that, one, our natural killer cells were, were having a real physical effect in terms of reducing Uh, proteins and inflammation. Now, as far as cognitive ability, as you mentioned, um, 90% of our patients either remained stable or actually got better during this process. Now, to put that in perspective, if you look at the Lilly, East and Biogen drugs, um, they had 0% actually remain stable or get better. What they showed was compared to the group in their study that got the placebo the group that got their therapy got worse at a much slower level. But the fact was 100% of the patients who got their drug still were worse 18 months later, or even six months later than the patients who, and, and 100% of both arms, whether or not you got the placebo or the drug, were both worse off. Uh, it's just that the rate of decline was slowed. What we showed was 90% of our patients either remained stable or got better. Uh, and we started to see results very quickly within the first six months of treatment. So based on all of that, we submitted that data to the US FDA and our, our patients in the United States is, uh, we'll look at a placebo arm, same thing group that doesn't get the tr- standard treatment. I mean, guess their standard treatment. They can be on their current medications, whatever they might be like an Aricept or something. Compared to our therapy, and we believe that within the first six months, we'll really see a stark difference uh, compared to the group getting placebo. Now, um, the other thing I just want to mention about our trial, the new trial that we're doing, is we're using an even higher dose of cells. In our first uh, phase one trial, that the data we presented, we only gave four doses um, and, we, and the highest dose we gave was 4 billion cells per infusion. Uh, The FDA has allowed us to move to 6 billion cells per infusion, and they asked us to treat for a full year versus just four treatments. The reason being that if you look at the existing uh, Alzheimer's drugs that have just been approved, they all gave their therapy for a full year as well. So they want to be able to, in some respects, have an apples-to-apples comparison as far as dosing. The only thing that's different about our trial is we're taking a much more advanced population. we're really trying to look at patients for whom society's written off, right? The medical community, the pharmaceutical community have really focused on early stage disease because they feel like that's so an area they can impact. Well, we're taking more advanced patients because uh, like I mentioned, some of the patients we've already treated were very, very advanced. And um, uh, you asked about improvement scores. So we had one gentleman who went from a score of 14, which is considered moderate Alzheimer's uh, to a score of 22, which is mild cognitive impairment. And you really never see patients with more advanced disease ever start to get better. And then again, the majority of our other patients um, either uh, showed some slight improvement, uh, a couple points, still within the same category, or remain stable. And, and that's why, and that was only after four treatments.
0: That's amazing. Re- really promising. And just to follow up on your point about focusing on patients with the advanced state of the disease. Is that uh, definitely recognize the importance of focusing on a population or subpopulation that's kind of been written off or, you know, maybe the, the disease has progressed to such a state that some people in the scientific community think that it's just going to be much harder and therefore, you know maybe we shouldn't even try, you know, to, to, to treat that stage of the disease. Uh, I am curious, as, as I mentioned you are too, how your approach might benefit the MCI population. It, it, it seems plausible, maybe yes. probable that it would have even more of an effect on people with lesser it, it stages of the disease that haven't advanced as far. Is that right? That's a great
1: point and insight, Matt. Um, so yes, you know we think that this can have great impact upstream, so the earlier stages, but because it's a crowded space where you have so many companies that are focused on the earliest stage disease we wanted to show sort of if we could take a more advanced population and actually show a positive impact one we could potentially have a path to accelerated approval because it's an unmet need to to date there is no treatment that actually helps the more moderate advanced populations um, remain stable let alone get better so if we can show that we can show it quickly uh, because it's, it's such a a graveyard of therapeutics, right? Uh, And we know that if, and the bar is so low. So um, if we can just get patients to remain stable, we've done better than anything out there. But if we can actually show improvement, that's just unprecedented. And once we're able to demonstrate that, then our idea is to move it upstream for early, early stage mild cognitive impairment, Uh, Maybe you don't need it once every three weeks, like we're doing in the moderate uh, disease population. And then perhaps if you have the gene, you have a strong family history, maybe you've had a workup and you have some protein in your cerebral spinal fluid, but yet do not manifest any symptoms. Maybe this could actually be something like an oil change or preventative, where you do it a couple times a year to prevent yourselves from ever getting into the uh, decline. And so those would be the areas that we absolutely want to look at. Uh, But for the first part, we wanted to really stand out uh, and focus on a population that everyone else has basically given up on. And if we can show real improvement there, then it naturally makes sense to look at the earlier stages. So great, great observation.
0: That makes so much sense. And I thank you for explaining it so clearly the sort of goals and and why you're you're focusing where you are now and your your ambitions, your great ambitions for expanding, you know, the, the use of the uh, the treatment down the road a bit. I did want I wanna also ask about the mechanism. So it seems like this treatment is having effects at reducing inflammation, but also reducing the levels of amyloid, tau, other proteins. Do you have thoughts at this point about how this process is working? I just you know I find that fascinating. It seems like in many ways, Alzheimer's, other forms of dementia. It's like, you know, trying to figure out the, the causation here is, is so complex. So some conjecture is pointing it uh, in the past has pointed to inflammation leading to protein changes. Other evidence shows, you know, it's protein accumulation that leads to the inflammation. Do you think that there's some type of feedback loop involved here or, or what's going on with the, you know, all these different factors and specifically related to your therapy and how it's affecting those factors?
1: Uh, Another great question. So, um, yeah, the last probably three or four years, even though I'm an oncologist by training, I feel like I went and got a PhD in um, neuroimmunology. And specifically, what we know is as the proteins accumulate in the brain, so these can be uh, amyloid proteins in in Alzheimer's patients or um, alpha-synuclein proteins in Parkinson's, frontotemporal dementia patients, the uh, other cell in our body, the T-cells, in their attempt to try to help remove the proteins, they go into the brain and they start to cause collateral damage. So remember how I mentioned natural killer cells have multiple receptors that allow to distinguish self from non-self. So that's how they leave normal tissue alone and they only focus on things that shouldn't be there. T cells only have one receptor. So as a result, they cause a lot of indiscriminate damage and inflammation. And uh, in their attempt to try to remove the proteins, they go in And they cause a lot of um, collateral damage, and so when you have the drugs that just remove the protein but leave the inflammation and damage behind, we believe that's one of the reasons that they don't improve. Now, those same T cells that are causing damage in Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are also the same T cells that cause damage in autoimmune diseases. They're the same T cells that attack the gut in inflammatory bowel disease, They're the same T cells that attack the skin and psoriasis or the joints in rheumatoid arthritis, or um, even the um, the thyroid in Hashimoto's thyroiditis or any of these uh, lupus, it's those same T cells that attack it. And what happens is there's been a lot of attention placed on a cell called regulatory T cells, but we've now found uh, from some great work by um, a, a, a gentleman, by the, uh, Dr. Brian Ravinovich, who actually is uh, somebody I know quite well, who found that NK cells have the ability to identify and eliminate these autoreactive, out-of-control T cells. Uh, But if you look at somebody who's got a flare-up of autoimmune disease, at that particular moment, if you draw their blood, many of them, their NK cells at that moment are very weak or deficient in terms of either number or killing potential. So we know that natural killer cells by nature can identify and eliminate these uh, autoreactive T cells. What we've since also found is that natural killer cells can help to remove uh, both um, amyloid proteins and alpha-synuclein proteins, and the way that they can do this is two mechanisms. One is the direct ingestion of the protein, and then um, they destroy, dissolve the protein. The second one is when they see the proteins, they secrete um, cytokines to recruit microglia then uh, uh, macrophages to come in and help to clean up the, the proteins. And um, and then the final part is that uh, there's evidence that natural killer cells can help identify and eliminate damaged neurons or cellular debris. So, you put it together, our NK cells um, can get up into the brain, they can identify the proteins and help to start to reduce the proteins, and then recruit other cells to come in and clean up the proteins. And then at the same time, they can reduce and eliminate all those T cells that are running amok and causing more damage than good, and then um, and, and clean up the cellular debris. Now, the final thing I just want to mention, people ask is how do you know uh, how the NK cells get up into the brain? Uh, and without getting too, too scientific, that we know that the T cells rely on a chemokine receptor called CXCR3, In fact, when they do autopsy studies of patients with Alzheimer's disease, they find that where the proteins are, you see huge amounts of T-cell infiltration. And when they stain the T-cells, they have this high expression of this chemicon receptor. So I wanted to see what happens with our cells when we do our expansion activation process. And at the same time, we're able to get the same upregulation of the same uh, CXCR3 chemicon receptor. So we know that's how they can get into the brain, And then once they get into the brain, they rely on two other receptors, uh, NKG2D and DNAM1, to identify those T cells and remove. We put this all together. It took us a long time to come up with a full baked mechanism of action. Uh, But now uh, when I've shared this with the leading um, uh, neuroimmunologists and experts, they all say, wow, that that does make a lot of sense.
0: What do you think about the theory that the underlying cause if there is only one underlying cause is the dysfunction of the lysosomes or like the cell's recycling clearance systems you just mentioned how your approach can have downstream effects that that help with that clearance system but do you think that there's some underlying dysfunction with that clearance system that maybe starts this domino process like i talked with dr michael glickman from uh, technion university in israel for the podcast on his research in organoids with findings that dysfunction in the ubiquitin proteasome system could be an underlying cause of of Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, other forms of dementia. do You think that ultimately there could be like some therapy that treats that as an underlying cause uh, that could be very effective, maybe in addition to uh, the natural killer cell therapy?
1: It's a great question. I I think that what we're finding about a lot of these uh, neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, even autism, even, Parkinson's, is it's multi-multi-factorial. And and I think it's, and yet we've had this explosion, right? Compared to when we were younger, we had very few of our classmates that had autism. Now we have, what, one in 37 kids that has autism. We have um, very few, you occasionally would have somebody with a grandparent that had some, uh, that they considered senile, but you didn't have Alzheimer's disease near to the magnitude that we're seeing right now and Parkinson's. So, I think there's a a lot of factors playing into play. One is um, there is some data showing that the uh, gut biome, the um, flora, the microbiome uh, can have an impact on who develops uh, Parkinson's disease and and Alzheimer's disease. What we do know is that maybe it's the way some of our food is now grown, uh, chemicals, uh, things that have uh, we're ingesting how that can have a detrimental effect on the flora in our gut. And we know that when the gut flora is disrupted, it can have a big impact on our immune system and immune function. Um, the other part is, I think, that uh, exposure to um, uh, agents that cause inflammation, whether it be pollutants in the air that we're breathing in, whether it be uh, things in our water uh, you know, uh, some of our drinks, even uh, some of the artificial sweeteners and things, who knows it's a factor of all those things that can contribute to inflammation and weakening our immune systems, or as you mentioned, uh, weakening the lysosomes. I think it's a combination of all of those things that has led to this explosion in incidents of uh, numerous, numerous diseases that we didn't see, you know, 20, 30 years ago to this magnitude. So, um I do think that natural killer cells can play a role across numerous pathways in terms of, uh, but again, if our immune systems are weaker, it's probably another reason why we're, we're getting more of these diseases.
0: I do want to talk about cancer, your your work on cancer uh, as well, which I find equally important and fascinating. But uh, one one more question I think about uh, in the realm of dementia. I saw a post, I think it was on LinkedIn, where you described flying from L.A. to New York every few weeks for the past 10 months to visit one of your most advanced Alzheimer's patients in Long Island. Uh, Could you talk about this firsthand experience, how it's inspiring and and reinforcing your work with NKGEN?
1: Absolutely. Um, So one of the reasons I just felt like we could never give up, even though people were telling us, um, stick with cancer, stay in your lane, is because of patients like the one we're treating in Long Island. So she's the lady that we started treating before COVID, who couldn't remember kids' names. She couldn't um, remember that she lived in New York and all of those things. And then she had this dramatic improvement that COVID hit. So for two years, we couldn't treat her. And unfortunately, she regressed back to her uh, poor baseline. And actually, in the last year, she's actually gotten worse. So finally, in January... Uh, This year, the US FDA allowed us to resume her treatment on compassionate use. And when we first met her, she was not able to uh, uh, walk anymore by herself. She couldn't feed herself. Uh, She was really uh, very much out of it. Um, Matter of fact, she and her husband are scheduled to celebrate their 50th wedding anniversary next year. And there was a time where he didn't think she was going to be around for that. Um, She's now to the point where she's able to walk by herself. She is now um, able to take bites by herself. She's, uh, when her grandkids come, she still can't remember the grandkids' names, but she can recognize the faces and interact with them. And when you ask her a question, she knows what you're saying. So she's much more engaged, more physically active, more uh, uh, energetic. And so when I was there just two weeks ago, the husband mentioned to me, how thankfully was that this last year instead of getting worse she's actually gotten better uh and she's really one of the more advanced patients we've ever treated her neurologist even mentioned how he generally doesn't see somebody so bad get better and uh, she's not to the point where she's you know uh, able to be independent or uh have deep conversations but there's some presence of her there and and for the caregiver's perspective you don't have to pick her up out of a chair each time she needs to go to the bathroom or she can walk up the flight of stairs by herself think of how uh, uh liberating that is from a caregiver perspective and and the husband really felt like he thinks they're going to make it to their 50th wedding anniversary and that she's uh so that's those are the things that continue to inspire me to do what we're doing. And I, and I believe that it's, this isn't a magic bullet that's going to bring them back to where they were before they got sick. But um, if we can restore a lot of dysfunction, uh, make them much more engaged because sadly a lot of these patients physically are still fine, right? Uh, They don't have any other uh, physical ailment. It's just that the mind is not uh, working at a capacity that they can function. So, these patients, many of them can live many, many years in sort of this difficult situation for them as well as their their families. So, I think this is, we're really focused on trying to change the lives of the patients, but also the families that are there for uh, their loved ones afflicted with this disease, and and that's what really motivates us.
0: Yeah, thank you for... Sharing that story and you know making that cross-country flight to see the work as it's happening in in real time with real patients must be must be very satisfying and and reinforcing, you know, to keep on working hard on behalf of these, you know, developing therapies. So we've been talking about SNK one, I believe for neurological, the neurological side. There's also an SNK two which is um, uh, using NK cells in the realm of cancer. My understanding is that SNK2, the NK cells are, are coming from donor patients or allogenic is the, the term to describe to describe that source. And then for the SNK1, the NK cells are coming from the, the, the patient. First of all, am I correct in, in drawing that distinction? And could you talk a little bit about the process um, and, and why, you know, the NK cells come from the donor in the case of, you know, the therapeutic target being uh, in patients with, uh, with cancer?
1: A really, really great question. So uh, there's two different types of cell therapies. Autologous is where I take your own cells and give them back to you. Allergenic is where we use a universal donor. We take that person's cells and then we give them to various people. Um, and so for... Um, neurodegenerative disease, we want to continue to give patients their own enhanced cells um, because we believe that it can really have the best effect on the uh, inflammation and things that are going on in the brain. Uh, for cancer, uh, the feeling is that some patients, particularly those that have been fighting cancer for a long time, their bone marrow has been so beaten up with you know, chemotherapy and treatments that sometimes—and sometimes they don't have the three, four weeks to wait for you to get their cells to grow them and give them back to them. So, the idea was that if we could develop a frozen, off-the-shelf product that somebody with cancer, they could get treated right away with the cell therapy, and these cells could then go in and have an anti-tumor effect, that would probably be more desirable for the cancer population. So, we have just started our um allergenic trial in solid tumors. We actually are almost actually done with the safety trial. Uh, it's one showing that when I give you someone else's cells that you're not having a, a, a bad reaction to it and that there is some activity against the tumor. And we should have the full data for that by February of next year. And so we're almost done with that phase one trial. Now, these are not genetically modified. They're not going after a specific uh, tumor target like a CAR-T or a CAR-NK, but we do think that they will perhaps make other existing therapies more effective, whether they be antibodies when you combine them with our NK cells or immune checkpoint inhibitors. So um, we're very, very excited about the work we're doing there. And the last thing I'll mention is Uh, Our trial is the only trial using an allergenic cell therapy project that doesn't require us giving uh, um, lymphodepletion or weakening a patient's immune system before we give them. Um, The problem with a lot of the other genetically modified products are uh, because they're so genetically modified, if I give you a genetically modified cell uh, from another person, your immune system many times will recognize and destroy it before it ever gets to the tumor. So the way that people get around that is we give you some a low doses of chemotherapy to weaken your immune system. So then your immune system doesn't chew these up and hopefully they'll get to the, the tumor and start to attack it. Our cells, because they're not genetically modified are a little bit more likely to escape immune detection. And uh, as a result, we don't need to, to weaken somebody's immune system before. So we are excited about the work we're doing in oncology. Uh, as I mentioned, I'm an oncologist by training And we expect to have some uh, real data readouts of that uh, in the first quarter of next year.
0: And I think I see some similarity in your strategy with trying to take on solid tumors as opposed to blood cancers like uh, leukemias and lymphomas. That's been the much more challenging realm of cancer, right? Over the past few decades, we've seen much more progress or, or more progress in treating blood cancers compared to many solid tumors. It just sort of reminds me of your approach with Alzheimer's, trying to take on these advanced stages of of Alzheimer's. Is that right? Are you sort of focusing on solid tumors as the harder problem and therefore, you know, maybe even greater upside in trying to address that? Or is there something about the natural killer cell approach that is specific to the solid tumors? A really great operation. So,
1: um, part of the reason we decided to look at solid tumors was that uh, most, if not all, of the cell therapies were focused on liquid tumors, the lymphomas and leukemias. And because that was such a highly saturated field where everyone was looking after that, uh, we, we felt it would be impossible for us to distinguish ourselves from the other therapies. We did have some preclinical data that our NK cells could work across solid tumors, and uh, that's one of the reasons we decided to go into that area. Now, unlike a lot of the genetically edited CAR-NK or CAR-T therapies that go after specific tumor mutation, and they're trying to hit a home run by themselves, we don't feel ourselves by themselves will be a home run. We never expected that. But if we can make other therapies better in the combination, uh, then we, we believe uh, hitting singles is a much better way to get to... Uh, success, uh, both for patients as well as uh, for the company. So um, we we needed to show that our allergenic cells are safe by themselves, which we'll show. And then we plan to do some combination trials because we do have some data that they can make existing antibodies like um, Herbitux or Herceptin or Rituxin or even immune checkpoint inhibitors uh, work better in tumors that have not responded well. So, But that's that's the reason we decided to go into solid tumors.
0: And in, in the realm of of solid tumors, again, uh, so so you're not doing any genetic engineering uh, as distinct from what other scientists have done with these cells and and with uh, CAR T. So so what are you doing? Yeah, you, you you've sort of alluded to this a few times, but um, so you're grow, you're growing them, kind of giving them, ramping up their ability to produce certain enzymes that can digest the tumors. Is that right?
1: Yeah. So. Um... By by and large, natural killer cells are very, very almost impossible to get to grow, Um, and uh, that's why we're really the only company out there that has both an autologous and an allergenic product, meaning that when we take 100 patients, random people, draw their blood, isolate the natural killer cells, we can get all 100 of their natural killer cells to grow, 100%. Most of the companies and their platforms out there, if they took 100 random strangers, they might be able to get 25 to 30% of all the patients to grow. So for cancer, if you have somebody that's been waiting a month only to be told you couldn't get their cells to grow, it's not a viable option. And that's why they went to screening and finding that one reliable donor that they could get to grow and using that as the source for all of their treatment. For us, uh, our IP and uh, really our, our prowess really lies in manufacturing. Uh, being able to get anyone's cells to grow. But if I take a weak, let's say I have somebody who has disease and I take their weak natural killer cell and I make it into a million weak natural killer cells and I give them back to the patients, we would argue that's not going to be biologically beneficial. So the second thing we're able to do is not only produce massive numbers of NK cells from anyone, whether or not we take that from a healthy subject or a heavily pretreated cancer patient, uh, but we can dramatically increase the killing potential or the killing power of the natural killer cell through our uh, manufacturing process and stimulation process. How we do that is we ramp up the amount of Granzyme A, Granzyme B, perforin production. We also ramp up the um, the, the overall energy inside the, the cell. The final thing is, um, natural killer cells have 40 plus receptors, some that activate it, some that inhibit it, but it's these receptors, it's almost like uh, finger-like projections that they use kind of like a. A blind person who relies on Braille, right, they can come across something and then using their fingers figure out what that says. Natural kill cells can use their receptors when it comes across something in the body to determine whether or not it's normal or something that's uh, diseased. And through those receptors, that's how we can provide a very safe therapeutic window of, of not touching anything that is normal. So when we do our process, we can produce billions of cells that have very, very high cytotoxicity or killing and increased power, but then also we optimize and draw out the maximum expression of these receptors. So they are heightened sensitivity, heightened killing potential, and massive numbers of cells uh, that we give back to the patients.
0: Really remarkable. I've heard you talk about when you feed these cells certain proteins they're too busy digesting them to fight with one another. So like normally they would just like attack each other in the petri dish. So natural growth is, is not going to work, but you feed them these proteins and they're, you're sort of distracted with this, you know, the the meal that they're having reminded me of uh, Odysseus getting Cyclops drunk and uh, falling asleep. So, you know, won't attack him and his men. Is that kind of what you're aiming for? Great great analogy.
1: So um, yeah. So when you put too many natural killer cells in a um, flask or petri dish together, they almost become like Chinese fighting fish or pit balls, in that they start to attack one another. Uh, and so, by we've developed two genetically engineered uh, feeder cells that, when you feed these cells to the natural killer cells, or you put them in the petri dish or the flask with the natural killer cells, they're too busy attacking, digesting them to attack one another. Now. In addition to using these feeder cells, we use a very unique sequence and timing of cytokines and proteins. Um, And you put that all, if you just use feeder cells, you don't see the activating receptor expression, you don't see the increased, uh, actually you see some activating receptor expression, but you don't see the increased cytokine or strength of the cell, cytotoxicity proof. If you just use cytokines and proteins, you see the cells start to attack one another and you don't get some of the other uh, mechanisms. So um, it's really been through a tedious trial and error uh, over many years to really optimize the right timing and sequence of of how to use things and also the right concentrations of cytokines and proteins as well. So um, I would say that if somebody were to download our patent off the web and try to replicate this, it's almost like a good chef that's deliberately um, maybe left out a step or two or not gone into much detail. It would be really hard for people to copy what we're doing. And uh, that's one of the areas that I think with regard to Alzheimer's, you would never consider using somebody else's natural killer cells for an Alzheimer's patient. One, it could potentially make the inflammation worse in the brain, and two, if you had to use the allergenic and give, say, a 65-year-old frail, demented female patient a chemotherapy to weaken her immune system. That'd be pretty cool, cruel to to do that to somebody who's sitting at a nursing home. So I think it'll be a long time before anyone can develop a similar cell therapy platform that can get into the brain uh, with using their own cells.
0: Is that a concern at all with regard to giving these cells to people who might have undetected forms of of Alzheimer's. So maybe they have cancer um, and you're targeting that, but it might have negative impact on them if they have, you know, an MCI.
1: So we think actually um, there's a lot of collateral benefits. Uh, So in some cancer patients that actually had psoriasis, when we gave them our NK cells, um, we actually saw their psoriasis also get better. Uh, because it's those same T cells that are causing damage and attacking the skin. So, um, overall, the way that our cells are stimulated, activated, and optimized, it could actually address numerous underlying health issues within a patient, not just if we're targeting cancer and somebody has some dementia, it actually could potentially help the dementia. Um, If we're treating somebody for uh, Alzheimer's and they have some other underlying autoimmune disease, it could actually... Uh, benefit that. So um, that's one of the, the so far that what we've seen is there's no collateral consequences, or, uh, untoward consequences of our treatment, only some potential bonus benefits.
0: So if you're willing to indulge me in some future tripping here, do you see a A possibility down the road where people take these natural killer cells in a preventive strategy where they don't have symptoms of these problems yet and they are preventatively strengthening their immune system by by taking these therapies in ways that could apply to, you know, preventing neurological diseases, cancer, and maybe other chronic illnesses?
1: Actually, if you go to countries like Japan, Thailand, uh, Mexico, a few of these countries have always considered natural killer cell therapy as a legal treatment, not a drug. And you will find clinics that offer some form of this therapy. The problem is when you really look at the types of cells that they're offering, they are not really activated and stimulated. They just produce a few and they give them back to you. There are some natural supplements that people can take to boost immune systems. You know, there's a lot of false claims out there with some of these supplements, how they boost immunity and all these other things. But there are real, we've actually looked at some uh, over-the-counter supplements that have been able to show that they can improve the uh, strength of natural killer cells. One is a a mushroom called agaricus blazei. If you uh, Google that, you'll find publications in major journals that have shown that it's boosted immune function. Uh, But for patients who have more advanced diseases, it's probably a little too late that a supplement could really just do that by themselves. But yes, we would love to eventually get um, the cost of manufacturing down to a point where anyone could take this as preventative uh, because it is safe. But first, we wanted to show that it works in a more advanced population. But absolutely, we think this could be uh, very useful in terms of uh, helping longevity, uh, wellness, things of that
0: nature. And maybe the in that cocktail could be uh, other, like the anti-amyloid drugs, like the monoclonal antibody medications we've seen developed, like in the case of and fully approved by the FDA. Could, could your therapy work in conjunction, like with, with uh, you know, one of those? Yeah,
1: man, you're right on with these questions. So um, you know, uh, most antibodies, the, the way they work, whether it's a cancer-directed, cancer-directed antibody or in the case of um, lecanumab, the amyloid induced antibody, is they bind to the target. So, in the case of catamab, it binds to the amyloid protein. And then you need a competent immune system to come in and basically clear this out. And the natural killer cells actually play a huge role in the antibody-directed antibody. Um, killing. So, uh, we actually think combining ourselves with the antibodies actually could improve the outcomes in the, any of those antibody therapies. Uh, and that is something we would love to, uh, explore with those companies. We think because what they found was if they reduced the amyloid protein, uh, but patients still had very high levels of tau, they didn't see any slowing of, in you know, regression. So, um, our cells can all help further reduce the amyloid, but we can reduce the tau and also the inflammation. So we actually think ours would be a natural complementary um, benefit to, the, to those drugs.
0: That's great, so it seems like a promising avenue. Uh, back to cancer, I'm jumping around a little bit, but in terms of the growth, like growing growing these cells, believe that that's basically an accurate way to describe what you're doing in the, in um, the Patriot Dish outside the, the patient's body. And it's you know, some people, whenever they see like supercharged growth, it might make them think about cancer. They're so just wanted to bring that up in case people are wondering about like, is there any risk that these you yeah. know, super, super cells might actually um, lead to or contribute to, to uh, the, the very problem you're trying to, to solve?
1: Uh, Fantastic question, especially in lieu of the data we saw with the CAR-T that quite a few patients developed um, uh, T-cell malignancies. So the difference between CAR-T is that when they put that into a patient, they continue to grow and divide and and replicate. For our NK cells, when we give them to patients, they only last about 17 to 21 days, and then they, they basically uh, pit out, so they're not multiplying or growing. So because they're not multiplying or growing, the potential to morph or mutate is not there.
0: So I read that your grandfather was the first popularly elected mayor of Seoul, South Korea. I'm just curious, Sort of a you know very different question, but how has that uh, particular family background been influential in your career? Are you more maybe more mindful of public health and public policy, or how has that shaped your your goals with your your health related work?
1: Uh, well, a uh, great question, and thank you for even looking into that. Um, so, uh, my grandfather was a tireless uh, champion of democracy, uh, human rights, and when korea was under the japanese occupation he was uh very much against the the occupation and then when korea became its own independent country he uh, ran for congress and really uh, fought against the uh, u.s installed um president at the time sigmund Rhee, who was really um when you think of like uh, uh a lot of the other countries like afghanistan when you had um you know US and Seoul presidents uh, they, they a lot of them were somewhat corrupt and really uh, tried to uh, tamp down on human rights he was elected as the first democratically elected mayor of Seoul South Korea and really uh, cared about the least among us and really making sure that it was a more equitable society for all uh, unfortunately shortly after uh, he became mayor there was a military coup d'etat and then Korea uh, went into a, a military coup uh, dictatorship um, and suppression of human rights for about 20 years, and it was during that time that my grandfather was exiled to the U.S., uh, unable to return for his whole life. Uh, He fought continuously for democracy, human rights, um, against uh, the military dictatorship. It really influenced me a lot, Uh, one, in terms of uh, the idea that whatever we're doing, we want to do something that's going to try to help as many people as possible, not just those that, that can pay for it, but anyone that really... Needs it, um, and and having practiced as a physician for 20 years prior to going into biotech, I really saw firsthand what a um, apartheid sort of separate unequal healthcare system we have, and how um, I saw far too many patients who had done the right thing, worked hard their entire lives, who were fighting ca- cancer that couldn't get the basic uh, necessity of care that they deserved, and many of them who who had insurance. And so that's always fueled me to try to do something that's going to be available to everyone. Uh, the founder of our company, we wanted to do something that was going to make a real difference in everyone's lives, not just the, you know a, a small percentage. And but I do think that that comes from my grandfather um, and uh, really uh, the fight for uh, the least among us. So that that's always been something that's been just embedded in who I am.
0: Paul, I really appreciate the conversation and your work and your ambition to make a difference for as many people as possible. It's been great connecting with you. I'm I'm really hopeful and anticipating as early as next year, I think, uh, seeing more of your very promising findings and data. So congratulations on on everything you're achieving.
1: Thanks so much, Matt, for the time and uh, your wonderful questions. Uh, It was really a pleasure.
0: Thanks for checking out the Making Sense of Science podcast. If you like the show and you want to hear more from the best thinkers of our time to help make sense of the latest health innovations and their impacts, please hit the follow button. And in the meantime, visit our online magazine at UpworthyScience.com, where you can read in-depth articles that explore health breakthroughs through the lens of rational optimism. Thanks for reading, listening, and most importantly, thinking about what you find on Upworthy Science.